All right, so this afternoon I want to sort of bring your attention to a particular psalm. And this is a psalm that over the last number of weeks I've thought a lot about and I've actually intended to preach a number of weeks in a row. I've talked to Manny and Aaron about it maybe the last three weeks or so of times when I was preaching. And it's always sort of been there in the back of my mind, but I just never really got to it, I guess. And, and it never really weighed upon me as it did very recently. But similarly so too, if you remember Manny talking about when he was first going to start First and Second Samuel, he had said that he thought about it a number of times and then he figured the Spirit really burdened him about it and he thought, it's time. Now's the time to do it. And this week was sort of like that with Psalm 73. And uh, that's where we're going to be. Now, like I said, I, I've thought a lot about this psalm over the last couple of weeks. And brethren, this is a most beautiful psalm. This is one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 73 and Psalm 34 are two of my favorite psalms to read. And I go back to them over and over and over again. And the reason it is an extraordinarily beautiful psalm is because it is filled with amazing truthful statements. But, but not just that, it is, it's a psalm which tells a story. You, you see the progression of the psalmist. You see his thoughts, you see his turmoil, and then you see him emerging out of the darkness. It's a story. But brethren, it's not just a story. Listen, I, I love a good story. Good stories are good. If you read fiction books, you love good stories too. But if you can't enter into the story to some degree, emotionally and mentally, then it's just a story. It's just out there somewhere. It's just abstract. It's just truth over there that you're supposed to understand. And if you read fiction or something like that where you're, you're, you're understanding what makes a good story, you know this. Because when you read a good story, what is happening to you? You, you start to learn the characters. You love the characters. You, you begin to uh, feel what they feel and desire what they desire as though you desired it yourself. When, when bad things happen, you have sorrow. When good things happen in the story, you rejoice. That's a good story. And you know that to be the case. And this is what's happening in the psalm. In Psalm 73, this is a story, brethren, that you and I know well. And we feel it. We feel for the psalmist. Not just because we're emotional beings and God has made us that way, but we feel for the psalmist because we are him. Because we have been here. Either we've been there in the past, or you're presently there, or you will be there in the future. But the fact of the matter is, brethren, this is a psalm where you can enter in to the things that Asaph is talking about. Because as Christians, we face these things on a daily basis. And it's a battle, brethren. And the psalm speaks. Here's the progression that we're going to see. You have a recognition of truth about who God is. A foundational truth that we have to grasp. But then, but then the truth is lost. It gets mixed up in a bunch of other stuff. And there's confusion and turmoil and communion with God is now set aside. There's a period of jealousy, desire for the things of the wicked and other things. But then at the end, the psalmist begins to emerge out of that particular darkness there's a slow return. There's a return back to truth, which abates sinful passions and desires and thoughts. And ultimately, brethren, there is a final recognition that it is good to be near God. Regardless of all of the confusion and the sinful thoughts and the sinful desires that had come in the past, there is a settled confidence in the Lord. Fellowship with God, the one who is indeed our treasure, as we'll see in Psalm 73. And so what I want to do is sort of just take you through it. And I want you to 
have a couple things here at the start. Brethren, if you're in the midst of what Asaph is dealing with in this psalm, I want you to start looking as he does for the truth which will bring you out of that darkness. And if you're not in the midst of it, well then brethren, store it up. I mean, Aaron talked about this a little bit, you know, last week. That you would store up the word in your heart that you might not sin against the Lord. And brethren, there are certain storehouses that are good to be full. There are. I mean, fill them up. Get your storehouses full of God's truth. Because times of famine will come. And you're going to need some grain to hold you over until the rains come. And so even if you're not in the midst of what is happening in this psalm, certainly you would have known it in the past, or you will deal with it in the future. And it will be necessary that you have your storehouses of truth full, so that you might use them when the time is necessary. So I want to read it. I want to read the whole psalm here. And then we're going to come back and I want to break it into four portions for us, which we'll look at. So Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase their riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went in to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Now, as I said, I want to break this up into four portions. First, we're going to see a foundational, indisputable truth 
That'll be verse 1. Then I want you to see the steady creep of sinful thoughts. That'll be verses 2 through 15. And then we'll see that Asaph has a proper reevaluation of things. Verses 16 through 22. And then finally, he has a darkness dissipating realization. That's verses 23 through 28. Now, before we really enter into all of that, a little bit of background will be helpful and you'll see why later on. But you'll see this psalm is ascribed to Asaph. You see that right there at the start, a psalm of Asaph. Now, those are, those are there in the original text. The titles are not. The, the titles of the psalms that you see. But if you see a superscription there at the top and it says a psalm of Asaph or you see at the top of uh, chapter 74, a masculine of Asaph, those are in the original text. So it's ascribed to him. And what that means is that he wrote it and, and likely would sing it or at least lead the people in singing it. And there's two reasons for that. One, it's his song. And number two, Asaph was the chief musician Put in charge by David. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. He was put in charge as both a singer and a musician. And he's referred to a number of times throughout the Old Testament. Uh, when you see the ark coming up from Kiriath-Jerim into, into Israel, into uh, Jerusalem, he's basically leading the charge and he's playing the cymbals. He's a drummer, maybe like Nick Perry. But... The, but the point is, all throughout the Old Testament, he's mentioned and typically mentioned with David as the one who brought Israel the songs of praise and thanksgiving. Always mentioned right along there with David. He's also stated to have been a prophet. 1 Chronicles 25.2 and 2 Chronicles 29.30 say that he is a prophet. And you'll find... As you, if you read through the Psalms, you'll see a number of different Psalms attributed to him. Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 through Psalm 83 are all attributed to him. And so this Psalm actually begins for us sort of a series of Psalms by this particular individual. And what's interesting is as you read through them, you will notice that some of them sound like psalms of praise and psalms of thanksgiving. And they sound very much like they're written in the time of David, as he would have been right there with David. But then some of them are different. Some of them sound psalms of lament. And not just lament, but lament in terms of, God, you've abandoned your people, you've abandoned the city, and not only you've abandoned the city, the sanctuary is, is trampled on. And so we have to ask the question, how can it be that someone at the time of David would have written psalms that sound like praise and thanksgiving, but also has these psalms ascribed to the, a person with the same name that seem to be written about Israel's desolation and exile into Babylon and even further on than that, some 400 years later. And there's a number of different ways people deal with that, one is to say, well, this is a different ASAP. One at that time and one at a different time. And there's, there's a possibility, but brethren, I just, I'm just throwing this out there. I'm not dying on a hill on this, but, but I do want to say this. The, the Psalms don't intend to make a distinction. There's, there's not an area where it says a psalm of Asaph, the son of Berechiah, which is this particular one. And then under other ones, it says a psalm of Asaph, son of someone else. There's no intent to do that. And the Bible will typically do that. When you have people with the same name, they are trying to distinguish. That's why when you read the Gospels, for example, it'll say Judas, not Iscariot. The intent is to go, not that one, it's a different one. And the Psalms don't do that for us. There's nothing there that says that. So I'm not saying it's not a possibility. I'm just saying if it was, you would think that people would want to mention that. And so what, what I would argue here is that I think it is the same individual. And what is happening is Asaph is said to have been a prophet. And so when you read the Psalms that speak of God abandoning Israel and the sanctuary is left desolate 
The glory of God has departed. Brethren, I think what is happening here is you're getting a prophetic insight into what is to come. Asaph is writing these psalms of destruction that is going to happen, and he's looking prophetically into the future. But nevertheless, this is the Asaph that is writing the psalm that we're reading. He is a prophet, and he is a, the chief musician, always in the house of the Lord, always to be playing music and thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. And so here's where he begins. Let's look at this. Verse 1. He begins by giving us a foundational, indisputable truth. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And now I say this is foundational because this. Without this truth, brethren, we are in a place full of ambiguity and uncertainty. Because in a very short time, we just read the psalm, in a very short time, Asaph is going to begin to unfold the internal turmoil in his soul. And brethren, if he doesn't know for certain that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, brethren, he can't be certain about anything. That's a foundational truth for him. He's about to enter into the turmoil that he is facing in his own soul. And he has got to know that God is good to Israel. And brethren, when the darkness creeps in upon you and I, one thing you had better know for certain is that God is for his people and not against them. You have got to have that foundational truth. And secondly, I say it's indisputable because... It can't be disputed. Someone, someone could try to dispute that God is not good. But brethren, it, it's not going to stand up. It's not going to stand up to scrutiny. No one could legitimately call into question the fact that God is good to his people. In this truth... God is good to those, to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's scattered all over the Bible. And maybe not in the exact phraseology, but that truth is everywhere. Matthew 5, 18, Jesus says it like this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's not some future thing, brethren. I'm not sure how some of you have heard that preached in Matthew chapter 5, those Beatitudes. Those are not just future realities. Those are here and now realities. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God now. The you who are you who are pure in heart, you will know God and see God now in a reality. Sure, you'll see it in a future reality in a different way than you see it now. But brethren, that's a reality for us now. But that's almost exactly what Asaph says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. All throughout the Old Testament, you have promise after promise after promise that God will indeed be the God of His people, that He will bless them, He will be with them, and that it, from Jerusalem, His glory will shine forth. And I don't. maybe you don't know exactly what to do with all that. Maybe you're uncertain about what to do with all that, those Old Testament promises. And maybe even this one here. But brethren, there's an interpretive tool that we need, and we will have gates of glory opened up to us throughout the Old Testament. And it's this. If you read through the New Testament, you will find that the New Testament writers are speaking about two different Israels. You find it in Romans chapter 9. Paul says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And now that's an interesting statement. Because you might think to yourself, well, Paul, no, they are. And that's it's like literally exactly what makes you a child of someone if you're their offspring, right? I mean, that, that is literally the way that you are a child of another person, is if you're their offspring. So yes, those who are children of Abraham are his offspring. But Paul is clearly trying to deal with the fact that there is indeed 
a true Israel, so to speak, and that the, the, the Israel in the Old Testament, the nation, was something that was supposed to foreshadow a future thing. He says, not all who are descended from Israel. What does that mean? Those who are descended physically. Not all who are descended from Israel physically, he says, belong to Israel. And so what we see is that the nation of Israel was a nation chosen and blessed by God. But that was never intended, brethren, get this, that was never intended to be the final thing. There was something more in place. There was something more that God intended for a true Israel. The blessing of Abraham was not just intended for physical descendants. It was meant for something more. We see in Galatians 3, those we, see, we find out in Galatians 3 who are the children of Abraham. Those of faith are the sons of Abraham. Brethren, it's those who have faith in like manner of Abraham who are blessed along with Abraham. Not just the physical seed. Of course, Israel was always Welcome to come and to partake of that blessing and enter into it. But make no mistake, brethren, the church of the living God is the heavenly Jerusalem spoken about in all of the scriptures. That is the thing that God was working towards. When you see it all over in the New Testament, you open to Ephesians, you find the dividing wall is broken down and there is one new man. Jew and Gentile alike have been brought in. There is no such distinction anymore, brethren. God does not have one plan for Israel and one plan for a church. He had one plan from the beginning. Israel was to foreshadow that plan. And God had made one people, one people which are to be blessed. And that, my friends, is the heavenly Jerusalem. The church of the living God is the Israel of God. Those are the ones who have the blessings. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And as we enter in and become partakers with Christ through faith, all of the blessings are ours. Because, brethren, we are Israel. You are Israel, not in flesh, but by faith. Not by blood, but by trusting in Jesus Christ. You are that Israel of God. And so when we read in this psalm, truly God is good to Israel. That's you, brethren. That's you. You grab a hold of that. Because as you come in by faith, if you recognize that you enter in by faith in Jesus Christ and you become unified with Him, brethren, you are Israel. But more than that, more than, more than the fact that you've become part of the, the true Israel of God, brethren, it says that God is good to you. God is good to you. And you mark it out. Those that want to speak about God as being some kind of evil, maniacal being, they don't know anything about this. They don't know that God is good to those who are Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Brethren, Christians, Christians who face calamity in their lives and they start talking about how they are angry at God. Brethren, they don't know this. They, they have not dealt with this reality that God is good to his people. I mean, I remember one time sitting in a Bible study at our old church and there was an older lady there and I don't know what had happened in her life, but she started talking about how she is just angry at God and she doesn't want him right now and and he how he hasn't been a good father to her and how her father would never treat her, how God has treated her and I mean, it lit a flame inside of me. I, I, it took everything in me in that moment not to, not to shut down the guy teaching the Bible study and say something. God is good to Israel, brethren. 
He is good to those who are pure in heart. And if you're angry at God because you think he hasn't been good to you, or you think that my father wouldn't be like this to me, you just don't know who God is. You just don't get it. And Christians do that at times, brethren. But this is something that you can lean your faith into. If you want something to lean your faith into, you lean it into that. God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. You can take that to the, to the bank. You can claim with David, Psalm 56, 9, This I know, that God is for me. That's a truth, brethren, and you can cling to that. But of course, things, things don't end there for Asaph. And they don't end there for us a lot of the time. It would be nice if it did, for a couple of reasons. We'd be done right now, <laughs> but we're not done. A lot of verses left. But, and there will be one day, brethren, where that will be the end for us. <clears throat> there will be one day where we will say, God is good to Israel. And there will be no but, which comes in verse 2. There will be no more sin, brethren. But in this world you will have tribulation, as our Lord said, and it comes to Asaph's heart and mind in the same way that it comes to our own. The steady creep of sinful thoughts. And here Asaph begins to tell us of his decline into utterly foolish thinking. And that is what it is. And no doubt these are things that we know well to one degree or another in each of our lives. So he says in verse 2, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Brethren, Asaph is in a dangerous place. He's, if you imagine him, he's on a steep rocky precipice with a, with a steep cliff on one side and a steep cliff going down on the other side. And what he's about to do is explain for us in, in metaphorical terms the sound of graveling slipping under his feet. He says that he grew envious of the arrogant because he saw their prosperity. Prosperity of the wicked. Verse 3, he sees sinful people, brethren, all around him, and they seem to have it easier than he does. He sees them and he sees that they seemingly have a happy life. And they have no lack. Verse 4, they never seem to be in trouble or distress, and their heart is always overjoyed even in their folly. Verses 5 through 7. They scoff at others, they freely oppress, they threaten, and even do so against heaven, and yet seemingly no retribution for their acts. Verses 8 through 9. He sees the wicked, and it seems to him that they are always at ease. Verse 12. And this for him is the cause of his stumbling. His stumbling isn't that he had saw these things. His stumbling is his reaction, his interpretation of these things. You see what he says? Verse 13, he says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. All in vain? You see what's happening? Asaph is taking a look out into the world. He's seeing the wicked. And, and he, he, like he says for us himself, that he was envious of them. He saw how they were prospering, how it looks like they're always at ease. They don't have any turmoil, no struggle. And he says about himself, all in vain I've done this. All in vain I've kept my heart clean. And I've washed my hands in innocence. Brother, he's wondering if it, was, if it is really worth it. To serve God. Because he looks out to the world and he sees the, the pleasures of sin are plenty. And the people are out there and they're filling themselves with it. And they seem happy. Why am I in this state? And the thoughts begin to enter. And you know these thoughts, brethren. The thoughts begin to come in. Maybe, maybe it'd be better if I went back over there. 
Maybe it's better back over there than, than where I'm at right now. Maybe I made a bad choice. Maybe I made a bad choice in giving my life to Christ. Maybe I ought to just give up. No good at this Christian thing anyhow. Maybe all of this is a bunch of falsehood. Maybe all of this is not even true. And I'm wasting my life. I live my whole life by this book. And maybe it's false and I end up at the end and I'm most to be pitied. All these other people out here, they, live, they seem to be living just fine. No turmoil in their life. No struggle, it seems like. Just like I have in my own soul. You know the questions, brethren. You know those thoughts that creep in. And this is what happens when your foot is slipping on the rocks. When that gravel begins to slip under your feet and you're facing a long fall down this cliff, that's what those thoughts are. That's that gravel slipping, brethren. And this is the same kind of ungodly conclusion that we see a number of times in the Bible. We see Job enter into this idea for a period of time. Job says in Job 9.22, you don't need to go there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. He says, it is all one. And therefore I say, he, God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And, and, and later, in chapter 21, Job speaks about how the wicked are prospering all around him. Very similar things to what you see here in Psalm 73. But he adds something that isn't here. And Job adds this. this is, he says, this is what characterizes the wicked. They speak like this. This is what the wicked say. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? You see, Job is saying, that's how the wicked sound. They talk in that manner. What's the benefit? What's the benefit of me doing this? Why would I do that? But the thing is, that is exactly the trap that Job and Asaph here had fallen into. They're speaking as the wicked would speak. All in vain. Why would I do that? What benefit is it that I would do that? And a little bit later, Elihu, one of Job's friends, comes in. He has to confront Job and Job's other friends. And he says to Job, You have said it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. You see how Elihu is understanding where Job is, what Job is saying. He says, You say it profits nothing that a man would take delight in God. That's not true, Job. And, and Elihu has said it straight. He says, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. You see, brethren, this is an easy cliff to slip on. It truly is. Job and Asaph had nearly slipped and fallen. And I would venture to say, brethren, that many, if not all of you, have traversed that cliff. And maybe when you were there, your foot slipped. Or brethren, maybe now your foot is presently slipping. You can feel the gravel under your feet, moving and sliding. And brother or sister, I would encourage you, grab hold of the hand which is reached out to you in this text. We'll, we'll see it in a little bit. But brethren, however perplexed we may be, however confused about as we look out into the world and see things that, that might not be exactly what we would think that they would be. Brethren, let us never think ill of God. His ways are higher than your ways. His ways are greater than our ways. Even when we cannot understand Him or all that He does, brethren, we ought never cease to believe and trust in Him. And we know this, that God's people will not fall headlong off of that cliff. They won't do it. Though they may slip, though they may stumble, they will make it to the end. There's a promise for us in Scripture for that. Jesus says He will not lose one. The Father, He has them in His hand, and then that is in the Father's hand, and He will not lose one of them. There is an assurance of that. 
We will make it to the end. But nevertheless, this can happen. The stumbling and the slipping can happen. And brethren, there needs to be a proper reevaluation of things when that is the case. And that's what we see Asaph doing here. He finds himself a safer, more well-trodden path, and we see him properly reevaluate the things in his life. And brethren, this reevaluation is no easy task. If you have been there, if you have been in the midst of the darkness, you know that when you're slammed into that dungeon of despair, the idea of reevaluation of truth, something that might pull you out of it, can seem like an impossible task. I didn't have this in here, but I have to quote Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> you, some of you knew I was going to go there. But you remember Christian, he's in the dungeon, and he's there with, with faithful and he's got that key in his pocket. And he doesn't even remember he's got the key in his pocket. They were this close to killing themselves in that dungeon. He reaches in and he finds that key in his pocket. That key of prayer. And it opens that door. But brethren, when you're in it, you know the, the proper... I mean, he is not willing to reevaluate the, way, evaluate the situation. And you know it, brethren, when you're in the midst of the darkness, it can seem impossible to do that. And that's what Asaph tells us, actually. He says in verse 16, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You see that? He knows that it is. It seems to him a very difficult task to do that. But then what? He says, he went into the sanctuary of God and discerned. Now, I'm going to tell you something, brethren. I don't know anything more true than this. But when God's people enter into a period of darkness or despair, and it begins to overtake them, the worst thing that they could possibly do is to slip further and further away from the church. That is the worst thing that they could do. I can't tell you how many times, brethren, I have had some kind of depression or despair and that it was in one place and one place only where God had moved away the clouds and God's glory had shone through and it was in the church with God's people singing these songs, hearing the preaching. That is the place, brethren. That's where it will be. And when the darkness creeps in, brethren, you need to be like Asaph and make your way to the sanctuary of God. And you need to be there. You need to be there as much as you can possibly be there. There is no other place where light will shine forth, brethren. It's not going to shine forth in your room, in the darkness, with your Bible closed, and your mind incapable of reevaluating truth. It will be in God's sanctuary. That's where you need to make your way. But what is the conclusion that Asaph comes to? When he reevaluates, because this is the key. You see, with a, this is why I, 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 I entitled this point a proper reevaluation, not just a reevaluation. You could reevaluate and come to the same brutish conclusions that we'll see he calls himself later that you had before. But it's a proper reevaluation of truth. And so, what does he, what conclusions does he come to when he reevaluates? And they are the exact opposite from where he was previously. First, he said that he had almost slipped and fallen. Now he says, look at verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places, and you make them fall to ruin. Earlier, he said that the wicked, they have no pangs in life, that they're always at ease. And now he says, verse 19, that they are destroyed and swept away in terror. The proper reevaluation, brethren, begins to recognize the truth of God. And he recognizes that when his soul was embittered, he thought like a beast. He says that about himself, verse 21 and 22. And brethren, beasts can't rationalize. Listen, you're made in the image of God. Your dog is not. Your dog does not think like you. Contrary to my mom's opinion, dogs are not children. They're not people. 
No animal is a person. They're not made in the image of God. They can't think. They can't, they don't have rational capability like you and I do. And when we are lost in sin and confusion, you're like a beast. You don't think rationally about God's truth. And when we fail to understand God in truth, we become brutish and we become ignorant. And we, like Asaph, need to be pricked in the heart. We need to be pricked in the heart. And no doubt, brethren, the truth is the wicked will be destroyed. It may look for a period of time that someone might prosper over there and they might hate God, but God will call it all into account. He will do so. And those who loved God will be received into glory. There is a promise for that. That is true. The wicked will be destroyed, and God will welcome those who love Him into eternal glory. And now finally, verse 20, verses 23 through 28, as Asaph reevaluates things, he comes to a realization that dissipates his darkness. And it is the same realization that will dissipate ours if we find ourselves, like Asaph, with our foot slipping. It is the realization that God is the greatest treasure above all treasures. And beyond all things that may be good, we can say for certain that it is good to be near God. That's the realization. Asaph says in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Look, there's our, there are a number of things that we could talk about just in this particular verse, but I want to just give you two briefly. First, even in the midst of Asaph's stumbling, he says, I am continually with you. He remains by the Lord's side. And that is critically important. If your foot slips, brethren, you'd better recall those words of Peter in the Gospels. Where are you to go? Where are you to go? He has the words of eternal life. <clears throat> Remaining continually with the Lord. A sense of steadfastness. A sense of... Whatever may happen, I'm not, not going to leave the Lord's side. I will be continually with Him. Brethren, that is important to have, to be continually with the Lord, even in the midst of that darkness. And number two, he says, the Lord holds His right hand. Now, was I, that, I sat there, I don't know if it was yesterday or maybe the day before, thinking about this verse. Brother, let me ask you this. If I had said in the beginning here as I prayed, Lord, thank you for your grace and your, you are such a merciful God to me and to us as a people and you hold my hand with affection. Would that make you uncomfortable? Because it would make me uncomfortable. I've heard people talk that way about God and I've never liked it before. I, I've heard people talk about God in a way that's very romantic and seemingly extraordinarily unbiblical. And maybe those particular ways are. But brethren, he says here, you hold my right hand. There's a truth in that. And we ought not put that away because we are uncomfortable with the thing over here. Because we're uncomfortable with the people saying that, you know, they want to kiss Jesus, we ought not come over here where the Bible says, you hold my right hand and go, nope, that's unbiblical. That's too squishy. That's not how God is. That is how God is. Brother, we ought to believe that because that's what the Bible says. And it's because it shows God to be far more glorious than I think many think he is. And this comes in our circles, brethren. Some of you know this. In our circles, it is, it is all too often 
to speak more about the justice and wrath of God than it is about the loving compassion of God. But here it says that he holds his right hand. God holds his hand. Brethren, this is a glorious image. What father would look down at his child who says, Daddy, hold my hand, and would refuse him? What father would do that? I would hope that none, not one father in here would do that. And God would do no such thing, brethren. We, as his children, can look up to our father and hold out our hand to him. And he, as a loving father, will gladly take hold of it and lead us and guide us. Brethren, we just sang it. His faithful follower I will be. By his right hand he leadeth me. That's a truth, brethren. That's biblical. He will lead us and guide us and by the hand if necessary. That's our Lord. And I would love to deal with a lot of different things in these verses, but we don't really have time to do too much. I just want to point out a couple of other things. Notice in verse 25 and 26, the recognition of God as Asaph's greatest treasure. He says that there is nothing on earth that I desire. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth that I want more than you. And brethren, this, this idea, this way, this mentality, this way of thinking will only come when we really catch a glimpse of how glorious and how wonderful God is. If we know how great God is, then there really is nothing in heaven that we want more than Him. There really is nothing on earth that we want more than Him. David puts it like this, Psalm 27, One thing have I desired of the Lord, one thing, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And he, listen to why he says, he doesn't say, be in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to look at the wonderful gold-plated walls or to eat the showbread or to have the sacrifice. None of that. None of that is in David's sight. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's what David wants. That's what David is after. Brethren, I ask you this. Do you desire one thing and one thing only to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Is He your treasure? Not anything else. Not even things that are good, brethren. Not even your family. Not anything. But is God your treasure? Such that you might say here, like He does, Though everything else may fail, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Brethren, that God would be our portion. Then we finally have his conclusion. You can see here, obviously, how this has progressed, right? You see him, he, he has this truth in the beginning. And he states it almost as though, I know this is true. God is good to Israel. But, but, this happened. My foot almost slipped. I almost stumbled. And here's how I almost stumbled. I looked out at the wicked and I saw them. And they looked like they're doing, a, this is great over there. And I'm in turmoil. And they're always at ease over there. And, and I thought to myself, this is all in vain. And then as he begins to move out of it, he says, I thought to understand, reevaluate here, what is this? Went into the sanctuary of the Lord and I began to reevaluate truth. That God will destroy the wicked. They won't stand. But those who love him, they will be received into glory. And then ultimately we see here, as he comes to the conclusion, he realizes there is no better place than for him to be near God. And where was he, of course, always? There, in the temple, leading the music for God's people. He says, it's good for me to be here near God. There's no better place. Those who remain far off, he says, verse 27, they perish. Those who remain far off, they perish. Those who are unfaithful, God puts them to an end. But those who make God their refuge, 
Brethren, they have a different end. It's not like the others. We sing that song. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His, the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded. Sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on Him their hope have built. None, brethren, shall ever be confounded who on Him their hope have built. And brother, that comes straight from the Bible. We read a bit of Psalm 34 in the reading. I want you to go there again for a second. Look at, starting in verse 19, Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. A, listen, someone who wants to tell you that you come into this Christian life and your life will be great, they're a liar. It's not true. The Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But, see, this is a good but. The other one was not. This is a good one. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. None of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's a biblical truth, brethren, to take refuge in him. And that's exactly what Asaph says in this psalm. I made the Lord God my refuge. Brother, if you make God your refuge, you won't be left abandoned. You can bake on that. God will not let it happen. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, I want you to feel those words of Asaph in this psalm. I want you to know them and believe them for yourself. No matter if you are entering the darkness, in the midst of it, exiting it, not anywhere near it. Brethren, it is good for you to be near God. It is good for me to be near God. We are made in God's image, and you were made to worship Him. You weren't made for anything else. You were made to worship God. That's, that is where you find your greatest fulfillment of purpose. Not in job, not in family, not in... No, there is nothing else on this earth that you will be greater fit into other than to worship God. That is what you are made for. And it is good for you to be near God. And that's what I want you to understand. Though you might be at some time lost, confused, stumbling, slipping, brethren, that is a truth that is worthy of remembrance. Keep it in your storehouse. Let's pray.